is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today we have on one of our regularly featured guests, and that's Stephen Rosiniak. Many of his pieces have been published in the great Chicken Soup for the Soul books. This one he wrote during the time his daughter Tracy was a high school gymnast. Here's Stephen. She didn't make a sound. You have a daughter, the doctor announced, before whispering something else to the nurses. His eyes silently spoke volumes as the OR team quickly went back to work. Not even a minute old, and already I felt such love for her. And still, I was absolutely powerless to help my baby girl. But I'm her daddy, I thought to myself. I'm supposed to be able to protect her, to keep her safe. And still, all I could do was watch from the sidelines and do nothing. It was out of my hands. She came home from the hospital five days later, and for a while, I kept her safe, for as long as I could, until the time came when I couldn't. Destiny demanded that Tracy would one day become a gymnast. After all, she began practicing for the sport while still sleeping in a crib. Twice, Karen and I found her roaming the house long after she and her stuffed animal friends had been tucked in for the night. Determined to learn how this feat was being accomplished, we waited and watched, and eventually we saw our not-quite-two-year-old scaling the sides of her crib with the amazing agility of Sir Edmund Hillary repelling Mount Everest. Rather than running the risk of her plummeting during one of our nighttime escapades, we thought it best if she made the transition from crib to big girl bed. But in hindsight, how could we have known that her perilous climbing adventures would one day give way to her spending her autumn afternoons on blue matted floors as a member of her high school gymnastics team? In retrospect, I now view her early years as a time when the risks she faced were comparably minimal to those before her today. A time, not so long ago, when her blankie and her daddy's arms were more than enough to keep her safe. In the moments leading up to the start of the competition, both teams were warming up out on the floor. A dread began to grow within me as I watched the slow and calculated maneuvers being executed atop the balance beam by two gymnasts as they tweaked their routines in last-minute preparations. Tracy, however, wasn't one of them, at least for the moment. Instead, I saw her stretching on the floor in her new competition leotards, or leos, as she'd recently corrected me. Soon enough, though, she would be out there performing, and once again, I'd be helplessly watching from the sidelines. Admittedly, what scares me the most is that when Tracy competes on the beam, she's on her own, potentially at risk, vulnerable. And through it all, I feel as I did in the moments following her birth. 
absolutely powerless. And for me, this is a problem. I'm her daddy. I'm supposed to protect her and to keep her safe. After all, this has been my job forever. But today, once again, when she begins her routine, all I can do is watch from the sidelines and do nothing. Once again, it's out of my hands. For almost two hours, she was out there, on her own. And when she mounted the balance beam, I held my breath and watched. A twist, a turn, a handstand, some fancy footwork, a surprising cartwheel, a few leaps, and then an aerial front-tuck somersaulting dismount, all safely executed, her hands raised in the air, her smile radiant. She nailed it again. Back in the stands, my breathing resumes. She's getting better every day, honing her talents, mastering her skills. Later, on the ride home, we rehashed the entire meet, and I realized, at least for the moment, my little girl was safe. And my grudging admission, she's not so little anymore. How did this happen? I mean, when did my little crib-climbing escape artist suddenly become the 16-year-old Leo-wearing gymnastics competitor anyway? I'm well aware that my fears of watching her perform, especially on the balance beam, are in part a metaphor for all the concerns that I'll always have for her well-being. It's inevitable that as she grows older, she'll be confronted with so many of life's obstacles. And when she is, I'll always be there, still a little nervous, sometimes worried, but always proud of her, just like I am today. And so, for the rest of her gymnastics career, I'll quietly remain another spectator daddy sitting in the stands, continuing as she competes, to both cringe and celebrate her determination and independence as she has the time of her life out there on the beam. And thanks as always to Stephen Rosiniak for the work he does for us, and thanks to Faith for producing the story. And my goodness, what a story it is of a father, well, in the end, just having to do nothing sometimes and watch and just support his little girl and be there when she falls. That crib-climbing escape artist is now walking the high beam and performing on the high beam. It's a great metaphor for life. And in the end, what a great father-daughter story. So much is written about fathers and sons, not enough about fathers and daughters. And, of course, mothers and their sons and daughters, too. These things we spend a lot of time on here on Our American Stories. We love your stories, your father-son, father-daughter, mother-son and mother-daughter stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites, your stories. Thanks to Steve Rosiniak, his story, his daughter Tracy's story, here on Our American Stories. This 
is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we love hearing your stories. Up next, a story from a listener on 1100 KFAB in Omaha, Nebraska. Brett Evanoff joined the Army right before the Gulf War, and he'll tell you his own story. Here's Brent. I was born in Council Bluffs, Iowa, raised good Midwestern values. I come from a history of family serving in the military all the way back to World War I. Both grandparents fought in World War II. Father, Vietnam era, countless aunts and uncles that had served over the years. That influenced me quite a bit, and I decided to join the military, graduated high school early. Just didn't really quite know what I wanted to do in this world other than serve the military and, and go on to, to, to do good things. December 1989, I enlisted as a cavalry scout and I went through cavalry scout training in Fort Knox, Kentucky and found myself assigned to the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in Fort Bliss, Texas, May of 1990. And being a new private, you know, the, everything's still new to me, I'm training. In August of 1990, we were out on a two-week field training exercise when Iraq had invaded Kuwait. To all intents and purposes, Kuwait has ceased to exist as an independent, sovereign nation. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, at this hour, Iraq remains in firm control of the tiny, oil-rich country of Kuwait. We had a, a warning order to prepare to deploy to the Middle East didn't really understand the consequences of that. We roll back on post and there's trains everywhere. We're loading tanks and Bradleys um, on, on trains to go to Beaumont, Texas. We're loading live ammunition into these armored vehicles to go to Beaumont, Texas. And uh, we had about 10 days to, you know, kind of finish shots and some. we did some training. Uh, being a 18 year old kid about to turn 19, the last three days we kind of had our own personal time and. To be quite honest, I only remember about a, a third of that time, you know, being young kids off to war. You know, we trained hard and we kind of partied pretty hard. Well, you know, I go over there overseas and uh, get on with my life. Get out, go to college at the University of Iowa, and I graduated. I was a f Omaha fireman for a little while, and then I proceeded to uh, get interested in anesthesia and left and uh, 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 became certified as a certified registered nurse anesthetist and found myself getting married to a woman, and we had three beautiful children, and, you know, my, my son is interested in going in the military, graduating high school, much like I did, and um, great kid on head on his shoulders, but I understand where he's coming from, you know, you don't know what you want to do, and so he uh, was going to enlist in the military, and, you know, I'm in my anesthesia practice, and I'm uh, thinking, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, and I comfortable uh, in my lifestyle and you know I think I'm got the world by the tail and uh, I find myself in a case in a seizure case and my sister texted me about uh, noon said hey can you talk and I uh, text her back I'm in a case can I call you later she said well call me when you get home and I get home that day it was in February of, of uh, 2018 and I clicked back in the recliner, I remember it vividly, and the ceiling fan was on low, and she said, uh, 
Brent, are you sitting down? And she's 12 months younger than me. And I know people out there with siblings, they know when they're messing with you or when something all of a sudden is very serious. And I said, yeah, I'm sitting down, sis. What's going on? She uh, bluntly told me that I have a 26-year-old son I don't know about. And I vividly remember looking at the ceiling fan. I watched the blade go around three times. And I kind of said, sis, I'm going to need a little more information. Well, the back story was my mom was OR housekeeping in another hospital, retired two years earlier. She got into genealogy and swabbed her buccal membrane and sent it in. And she gets like an email back saying, hey, you two need to really talk. And my mom didn't know what to do. So she contacted my sister and my sister kind of was emailing this guy. And it turns out this guy was uh, in the United States Navy station in Italy. And he said, you know, I... You know, my birth certificate says father unknown. You know, if he doesn't, this person doesn't want to be a part of my life, I understand that. If they could tell me a little bit about my, maybe my genetic history, if I need to be concerned about anything, I'd appreciate it. And I'm just floored. You know, here I have the world by the tail and, and, uh, and then something like this happens to you unexpectedly. I, you know, you're only on this earth, you know, a snap of a finger, fraction of a second of time. Why would you not want to get to know someone like that? And so I said, yes, Chris, I would love to, you know, get a hold of him. And my sister sent me a picture of him. You know, we look alike. His mother was down at Fort Bliss, Texas, the same time period I was. And, you know, I, I just harken back to that time where being a, you know, raise your hand if you've never done anything irresponsible. I remember vividly video conferencing with this guy and up pops this uh, this handsome young stud in the United States Navy serving overseas and we kind of just you know said hello and you know got to know each other a little bit and uh, it, it was really a, a, a wonderful experience and you know it, as uh, I you know, a month later, I kind of talked to my family and, you know, told them the story and how good head on his shoulders, um, you know, and we just kind of fomented this relationship of, you know, getting to know each other, you know, and this, this kid has a, a, an amazing ability to, you know, um, I felt guilty, um, you know, because I missed being a father to him during impressionable years. Um, and I felt guilty a lot of time, and, and he kept interrupting me, saying, "Hey, let's not look in the back, the rearview mirror. Let's let's look down the road and just enjoy what we have." And, and it, you know, a lot of times it brings me to tears, to be quite honest, that this uh, young man can be so strong, and it's really humbled me in a lot of ways. So, fast forward. Um, my son's in the United States Army, and, I, and again, I call my my son that I've always known, my old young son, and Tyler, my new old son. You know, he's in the Navy overseas in Italy. Um, my son, my uh, son Nicholas, my old young son, is in the Army in Korea, and I've got two high school girls. And uh, you know, when I got out of the Army, I spent four months backpacking through part of North Africa and, and Europe, and. Uh, quite an adventure and, and come to find out my my new old son um, has traveled extensively through Europe and has a military history entrance 
interests much like I do in my son Nicholas, my uh, old young son. I thought, wow, you know, what an amazing experience. My two sons had not met. Um, that summer I flew Tyler from Italy um, to meet his sisters for the first time. Unfortunately, my son was already in the army in, in Korea at that time. So I thought, how can we all just kind of um, uh, take this blessing and tie it all in together? I came up with the solution to, um, I'd never traveled to, to Far East Asia. Um, so I put this out there um, and it kind of came together in May and June. We spent 30 days backpacking through South Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia to be able to see my sons meet for the first time and just kind of can try to connect ourselves as a family as best we can underneath the circumstances. And boy, was it humbling and an amazing experience. Um, so we're traveling, um, getting to know each other. Um, Tyler, my new old son, does not have sisters. So um, watching them interact and new big brother kind of as we're spending 30 days together, literally staying in hostels and kind of roughing it. You know, that's kind of what, what the adventure we were looking for. Um, teasing his new sisters and likewise the sisters teasing their new older brother back and brothers and brothers kind of interacting um you know as a as a father it um it really you know kind of i was very very happy and you're listening to brett evanoff council bluffs a small town guy joins the cavalry as a scout because he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life except be a soldier. And he comes out, lives his life, and then he gets that call, and we've all had that call, are you sitting down? And you better sit down. And then he finds out he has a 26-year-old son he never knew. And this became the gift, a blessing, as he said. I felt guilty. I missed being his father during his impressionable years, he said. And the son says, let's not look in the rearview mirror, Dad. We got a life to live. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, this beautiful story, Brett Evanoff's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with Our American Stories and Brett Evanoff's story, and the family is reuniting my new old son, my old young son, and his two daughters, well, traping around in Southeast Asia, getting to know each other better. Let's continue with the story. We decided that we wanted to see Vietnam, and um, in order to see really Vietnam, uh, they don't have a reliable public transportation system, so you have to ride motorcycles. And I, uh, through a lot of research, I found a, a guide out of Da Nang, and uh, we spent five days uh, touring on motorcycles. Um, my daughter riding behind me and my other daughter riding behind the guide and my two sons riding their own motorcycles. And we 
drove along the Ho Chi Minh Trail um, out of Da Nang, headed south to the Aisha Valley. And we got a permit from the communist government to climb Hamburger Hill and, and uh, uh, rode to Quezon. And everywhere we're going, we're stopping in little villages and meeting these people and, and still seeing a lot of remnants from the war in a lot of ways. Um, and we find ourselves at Quezon. And, um, well, we're looking around at some of the bunkers that had, that had collapsed and were there. And a village, local villager came up to me and he had some trinkets and he wanted to sell them. And I looked at them and the first thing I saw was a US military dog tag. And then I saw a North Vietnamese, rusted North Vietnamese army medal and so a few other trinkets and so forth. And, and I knew I wanted them. So I, I paid, I think I paid like $7. And you know, we went on with our trip, um, connected as a, as, a, as, a, as a family and uh, had an amazing experience, you know. Um, my my son that I've never known comes into my life and we kind of come full circle with the family that he's never known and my family with a son they never knew. Well, we get back from our trip to Omaha and I go back to work and I start researching, you know, on my time off, uh, this, this name on this tag. Well, this name kind of had a unique first name spelling, so I... The first thing I did is I used internet search to find, see if he was maybe one of the 68,000 that were killed in the Vietnam War, and his name wasn't on there, which kind of gave me hope that maybe I can, might be able to reconnect this piece of property to a U.S. military serviceman. My preliminary uh, internet searches weren't coming up with anything. I, my wife got interested, and she kind of helped me look around. And because of the gentleman's unique first spelling of his first name, we come across an old obituary from Minnesota of a gentleman that perhaps was this guy's father. In the print it said, survived by um, this gentleman and his wife. And my wife took the first name of his wife and the last name and uh, looked on social media and uh, found a Carol Hammond. And we uh, got a phone number and I called and it was a voice machine and I said, you know, hello sir, you know, my name's Brent Evanoff from Omaha, I just returned from Vietnam and if uh, I came back with a piece of property that um, that you may have left over there, if you're, you know, the mister uh, that uh, happened to lost this property over there, you would you please call me? And So a week went by and uh, it was a weekend and I'm doing stuff around the house and I get a phone call from this gentleman and he says yes uh, you know this is me um, I did serve I served actually two tours in Vietnam um, you know how can I help you and I proceeded to tell them that you know uh, I was traveling over there and and uh, purchased this dog tag and uh, he the first thing he asked me he goes what numbers are on there and I proceeded to tell them and he goes oh that was from my second deployment well, he proceeded to tell me his story, and um, he grew up in northern Minnesota and uh, got in a little bit of trouble three months before the graduation from high school. And back then, uh, you either went to jail or you went in the military, and he chose the military and found himself uh, in the 173rd Airborne in Vietnam, 1967-1968. Uh, he told me that, you know, that he was wounded. Um, with a, a roadside bomb that uh, was command detonated. And, uh, you know, he uh, 
if it wasn't for him wearing a, uh, the radio that day that he probably would have lost his life because a large piece of shrapnel had torn into the radio and he, he was wounded in the leg and and uh, and got knocked out actually and came conscious and and recovered from that um, and went on to serve in uh, Berlin Germany during the 60s in the Cold War decided that uh, he wanted to go back to Vietnam so if found himself in the 101st Airborne in 1969-1970 uh, in um, Vietnam and he said that time was uh, you know a lot different than this first tour. They were doing missions of, uh, you know that they didn't necessarily always wear their rank or their insignia or patches and and uh, he was in the Battle of Tam Ki and there, his platoon of 35 found themselves surrounded um, in a gun battle for uh, 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 at least a day, I thought maybe he said two, and and when the battle was over, he uh, out of the 35, he was one of seven survivors, and in fact, of those seven, two were not wounded, and he was one of them. He proceeded to tell me that he decided that, you know, back home in Northwoods, Minnesota, was a place that he'd like to go, and found himself there, and he actually runs a, uh, a retreat for a local veterans group up there, and and hopefully one day I can meet him. Well, we had a wonderful phone call. I um, hung up and I told him that I'm going to be mailing this piece of property to him. And I said, um, I, I bought it from a villager in Quezon. And he goes, wow, you know, I, I never stepped one foot on Quezon. I operated about 50 miles south of there, actually. Um, the only thing I can come up with is, you know, trading over time, villagers and so forth. And uh, and he doesn't remember one incident where he uh, specifically lost his dog tag. But uh, I mailed it to him and, you know, I, I get an email about a week later from his wife. Um, and it's, it you know, his wife says it, it really, my uh, effort to track him down and return a piece of property from his past really uh, meant a lot to him. And, uh, you know, in my story just kind of comes to a conclusion that two circles have been closed. A son I never met before, um, reunited with his father and family that he's never known. And that um, through our travels together as a family, forming a, um, a new relationship that uh, we were able to kind of bring full circle um, a veteran's past to him by reuniting him with something as simple as a dog tag, which any member who's been in the military knows how much that is a part of their life at the time. So, you know, um, that those two experiences combined really humbles me as a, as a father, as a, you know, a human being and uh, an American that, uh, you know, just when you think that you think you have life figured out, you know, the older I get, the more I firmly believe life is truly stranger than fiction. Indeed, and that's what we learn here every day, telling stories, especially our listeners, telling stories. Great job, as always, by Robbie on the production, and a special thanks to Brett Evanoff, his story, my goodness, his family story, and then another family story that he, he stumbles upon while having an adventure. And by the way, if you do take your family overseas, go to these places like Vietnam, go to Haiti, go to, go to Africa, go to places that, well, you can learn a lot more about your own country and others by visiting these places. And what a thing to do for a guy. Most people would have taken that dog tag and stuck it someplace. But he decided to track the person down who it belonged to. 
And I only know that my, my grandparents would have loved to have had a dog tag or letters or anything from the son that died in World War II, and all we got was a flag. So for anybody who served and lost somebody, or even not lost somebody, the importance of this paraphernalia, well, it's not small. By the way, uh, this show, as you know, is free to you, but it is not free to make. And any donations you'd like to make to us to continue to hear beautiful stories like this, well, they'd be appreciated. Send any donations to OurAmericanStories.com. We're a nonprofit, and we love what we do, and I know you love listening to these stories, and we want to keep telling them. Brett Evanoff's story, straight out of 1100 KFAB in Omaha, Nebraska, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and up next, a story from Horst Schultz, who has told quite a number of stories here on this show. He's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton, and he's the author of Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a World of Compromise. And today, Robbie brings us a story about Horst's first experience as a general manager of a hotel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Horst Schultz grew up in a little village in Germany. There were no hotels there, and he'd never stayed in a hotel before. But at the age of 11, Horst told his parents that he wanted to work in the hotel industry and would go on to co-found the Ritz-Carlton Company. As you can imagine, there were many stories in between, like this one that came out of his experience at a Hyatt in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was warned. As soon as I took the job, people called me and said, oh my goodness, Pittsburgh, you must be kidding me. It's the worst place to work because there's a union that is truly, you cannot work with. Well, so what? I can work, I have a thick skin. The first day at work, I was sitting in my, new, my office for the first time and general manager of a hotel. The secretary comes around and the union is coming. So let him come, come in. And here they come with six people. Five of them sit in chairs facing me around. One of them, an older gentleman who incidentally had no hair, no hair brows, nothing, and talked like a character in a movie. He put his back to me and he said to us, I ask him if he ever saw a car blown up. That was his introduction. <laughs> and I said, car blown up? No. And he half turned around to me and said, I meant with somebody in it. That was a warning to me. And I, I was stunned, of course, and I said, what does that all mean? And they left after, after giving me several warnings to treat our people properly. And I kept on saying, they're my people too. They're ours. And so they're angry, look at me angry. Obviously, it was clear they wanted to intimidate me from day one. And, uh, and this went on, and, and by the way, that union boss, the Baldy, he showed up every day at one o'clock, every single day, five days a week. He showed up in the office in a pool of secretaries, and he screamed, where is the... And there's some bad words. 
which was me, looking for me every day. He knew where my office is, but he came and scribbled, where is the... And then he met with me and absolutely berated me about anything that happened. It was just unbelievable. And that, that lasted several months. And one day, they, he didn't show up. And so, I, what, what's happening? I waited always at one o'clock. I knew he would be there, and I didn't want to have a bigger scene than there was already every day. I, I assembled very fast my key execs and said, anything happened, well, something happened with Susie or whatever, whoever it was, I forgot. So I ran to the Union Hall, which was eight blocks away, and walked in, and frankly, I said the same thing that they said, where are they? And I used the same words. And he said, you can't go in there. I said, but where are they? They're in an executive conference. I said, like heck, I can't go in there. And I walked walk in the door and said, where the are you? I was waiting for you. We have a meeting and you don't show up. What's the matter with you? You can't be in here. I said, like heck, I can't be. We have a meeting. You didn't show up. I want to have our meeting. Finally, they said, we'll talk about tomorrow. And I left. And a couple of years later, when I left, by that time, I got to know them well. One of the people in the, that was in the room said, when you left, we said, the SOB likes it because they, thought they want me to be intimidated. Now they realize he is enjoying it. <laughs> we, may, we have to have a different approach. And, and the relationship became very good. They started respect. We, had, we became, in the meantime, a very busy hotel. It was a terrible hotel before. We were very busy, we were highly, highly rated, the highest rated in Pittsburgh. The employees were happy. They made money suddenly. We hired more people. So there was a lot of respect by the time I left. But the unions were great. It, 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 it took a while. Mind you, I came in June. By Christmas, Hyatt had a philosophy to give every employee a turkey for Christmas. So we gave every employee a turkey. And suddenly the union struck us that afternoon, pulled out. Uh, so why? because you're bribing our employees. That's how crazy it was. I know this is hard to believe, this is hard to comprehend. That's how crazy it was. It was unbelievable. But we won. And I had a sensational uh, labor lawyer, local. He kept on reminding me, he kept on reminding me nearly every day, Horst. Take three steps forward and they don't take two, three quarters back, even if you keep one-tenth of a quarter of a step, you win, slowly win. Do, you don't think you can take three steps forward and, 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 and stone while, while there. You're going to lose. You're going to be finished. And that's what we did. I just very slowly. I didn't let anybody else deal with the union but myself. But we did. And you have to give them credit. They saw, they started to respect. And I, and I kept on saying to myself, come on, as tough as they play, it's a game. They're human beings. And the end, they will appreciate if you do things right. They can't help it. And so will the, and the employees will tell them. But the, funny, another story, in the union story, I was there the first weekend. I walked through the lobby and the doorman said, hey, come here to me. I'm, I'm the new general manager. Hey, he waved the finger to me. Hey, come here. 
I said, yes. And he was kind of squeezing something in his hand. And he said, you know what I have in my hand? I said, no. What? what, what? He, obviously, he was fascinated by it. I said, what do you have? And he opened up. He had a roll of pennies. I have a roll of pennies. You know why? I said, why? He said, if I crack somebody in the, in the face with that, I break that jaw. I didn't know what that meant, but as I talked to him, and then he said, I want to tell you something. If you play ball with us, mind you, this is a doorman talking to me, the new general manager. If you play ball with us, you'll be okay. Just play ball with us and you'll be okay. And I said, oh, thank you. But as I talked to him, I saw his uniforms had several small holes. Now, what should I expect from an employee whom I, leadership, whom I give a uniform with holes in it? In that moment, I have established the standard there. And it was leadership that created this environment. And it was my business now to change it. And we did. Well, management did. What, what, what was there was, of course, was not leadership. It was management. There's a, there's a difference between management and leadership. Management, of course, makes things happen. Management works on processes, etc., etc. Uh, but leadership takes people toward a destination, a destination that is of excellence for all concerned. Leadership has a great vision, but that vision is good not only for for management, not only for the investors, but good for the employees too. And then you align your employees too with that vision. You know, and, that, and that's one of the sad things in, 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 in management. We all talk about alignment, and that's a buzzword right now, alignment. I mean, I, I see it all the time. I, mind you, I work with a number of ex excellent companies, I work around, around the world, globally still, consulting and the talk is always alignment and when you and when you go to an employee and say gee you are an associate oh that sounds good isn't it you're an associate now what is the thinking of this company what's the vision of the company nobody knows but the company talks about alignment alignment is very simply if every employee understands the vision of the company and every under employee understands the motive of that vision and everybody, everybody understands how their individual motives con connects to the motives of the organization. With other words, the vision is truly good for all concerned. And if you set the vision as an organization, you have to agonize is this good for all concerned? Is it good for the investor? Of course. If it's good for the customer, it has to be. Is it good for the employee? It must be. And is it good for society as a whole? Only then can that vision be a real vision for the organization. But then you have to let everybody know. And if everybody knows, and everybody knows the expectation of the customer, now you have an aligned workforce. Otherwise, it's only rhetoric. And a special thanks to Horst for sharing his story. Again, pick up the book, Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a World of Compromise. And give it to friends who lead, because it's so important, and leadership is different than management. And what a story he told about that doorman, because, my goodness, 
Any new general manager, most that I know, would have just gotten right back in that guy's face and let him know who was boss. And he had sensed there was some kind of real leadership problem and management problem, and he decided to do something different. And that is, look at the source of the problem. And he looked at that uniform, saw the holes in it, and he knew that there was a different way and a path forward. And he developed relationships with these guys. He didn't do what most would have done, which is either acquiesce or fight. There was a third way. Horst Schultz's story, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and our next story well it's about a 17 year old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50 star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day here's Greg Hengler with the story after learning about Betsy Ross you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent US flags were designed It might seem like a no-brainer. Flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heff's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic. Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of our country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? 
And so I got up and I approached the desk and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now that a B minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, the friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later, I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well... Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly addressed it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to his buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank my teacher and he said I guess if it's good enough for Washington it's good enough for me I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor and a seven term mayor of Napoleon Ohio. He spoke extensively as many as 200 engagements a year and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heft died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68. But his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heft's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. 
Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show. And according to the National Turkey Federation, each year Americans gobble down 46 million turkeys for Thanksgiving. But this next story is about one particular turkey that went missing. Here's Steve Reed, a listener on WHO in Des Moines, with his story on how the master chef lost the Thanksgiving turkey. My name is Stephen Reed, and I live here in Carlisle, Iowa. And I would like to share a story about how I lost a Thanksgiving turkey. So just a little bit of a background. I am a chef, and I have worked as a chef for over 30 years now. And back in 2006, I saw a job listing for a family that was looking to hire a private chef. Lo and behold, I was offered the position and I was just elated. Pretty much almost immediately, I bonded with this family. And it was just a joy to show up to work every day. And in fact, the husband of the family, he gave me the name of Master Chef, which I had to laugh because I'm not a Master Chef at all. I mean, yes, I am a chef. Yes, I am an excellent cook, but um, but I am not a Master Chef, at least in the official in the official sense. So I had been working for this family for two and a half years, and Thanksgiving was coming up, and. They were trying to uh, figure out what they wanted to do for Thanksgiving dinner. This debate developed between the mother and the father of the family on what kind of turkey that they wanted to have. The husband who had done all of the cooking before I was hired really had this obsession with really large turkeys. But the mother of the house was really concerned about eating healthy, so she really preferred grass-fed organic turkey. In 10 days, this whole argument went on. And so, a week before Thanksgiving in 2008, the phone rings in the kitchen, and it was the husband, and 
He said, Master Chef, don't worry about going to the grocery store at all. We're going to have two smaller grass-fed organic turkeys show up at the house. They're going to be delivered to the front door. They're going to be all thought out, and they're going to be all ready for you. And I'm thinking, oh, that is just incredible. I went through the weekend, just really didn't think anything about it. And so I came back in to work that Monday and everything was going normal. And the phone rings. And it is the husband of the family. And he says, Master Chef, we've changed our minds. And I want you to just drop whatever you're doing and go to the store and I need you to find a turkey and make sure that it's around 20 pounds, please. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, just, are, are you kidding me? With it being the Monday before Thanksgiving, the parking lot was jam-packed full. There was one spot that I found and it was in the very corner of the parking lot, just about as far away from the grocery store as you could possibly be. And going to the grocery store, sure thing, you know, it was busy, it was loaded with people. And not only did I need turkey, but I also needed some celery. So I walked into the store and immediately, immediately went over to the produce section, grabbed some celery, and proceeded to the back of the store to where they kept all of the turkeys. And then I'm looking through all of these turkeys, and wouldn't you know, way down in the bottom of this cooler, there's this huge turkey. And it was just like the heavens opened up and a chorus of angels were singing down upon me. It's like, yes, I have found a 22 pound turkey. And then I picked up the turkey. Now, the thing about the turkeys, about how they package those is they put that plastic mesh around the turkeys and then they have that little with the excess mesh they have have that handle that they make well carrying a 22 pound turkey with that little handle just really started digging into my hand and like like almost immediately it, and so i'm 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 walking i'm walking towards the front of the store and i'm switching hands and obviously there's lines at every cashier station so I'm having to hold the turkey of course by now my arms are feeling feeling like they're gonna be pulled out from my shoulder so I get to my truck and I was just so tired of carrying this turkey and so for whatever reason I just threw it in the back of my truck Now, something that I need to tell you about my truck at this point, it didn't have a tailgate. So uh, anyway, I put the turkey into the, into the back of the truck with the celery. And for a moment I thought, well, maybe I should take the turkey and I should put it into the cab of my truck. 
But then I thought, nah, I don't think that'll be, it'll be okay. That thing weighs 23 pounds. That turkey isn't gonna go anywhere. So I make it home and go to grab the turkey and the celery and all I see is the celery. Oh, this horror, this, 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 this terrible feeling just came over me. It's like, oh my gosh, I have lost the Thanksgiving turkey. But I had to go back and go find my turkey, wherever it might be. So I only had to drive maybe three-tenths of a mile. Yeah, so there was my turkey, and it was just sitting on the curb of the street. And when I pulled up, uh, there was this older gentleman. And I'll just, I'll never forget this gentleman, because he was just standing on the curb, just looking down at my turkey. He wasn't touching it. He wasn't trying to pick it up or do anything like that. He was just standing there with his hands in his pockets looking at it. And as I say, I'll never forget him because he had on like these docker slacks. He had on this uh, really nice uh, tweed sports jacket and a derby hat. And I obviously, I've never met this man before, but I have to go pick up my turkey. And I go and I was like, excuse me, sir, but uh, this is my turkey. Uh, I accidentally lost it on the way home. (laughs) And this gentleman says, well, I don't know anybody that's ever lost a turkey. And I just shook my head and said, well, until now, I don't know anyone that ever has either. turkey into the car seat that I had in my truck and drove home. So then I had maybe 45 minutes and I I was just finished up the meal for the family when they came home. Of course in this time I'm thinking about everything that that happened that transpired and I'm just laughing to myself. It's like only you. Anyway so the family comes in you know, the kids come in, and then and then the uh, father comes in, and obviously the first thing he says is, Master Chef, did you find me a turkey? And I go, oh, I have a turkey, and I have a story. He goes, oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know whether I should tell him or not, but let's face it, it, it was a funny story. And they were just rolling. I mean, they could hardly eat their supper. They were laughing so hard. And a special thanks to Master Chef Steve Reed. And a special thanks to our master producer, Monty Montgomery. Great job as always, Monty. And by the way, if you have a story, a funny story, a light story about your family, about your life, uh, maybe even a turkey, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. And as always, your support is always welcome here. We're a nonprofit, and our storytelling is free to all, thanks to WHO. But if you'd like to support what we do, go to Our American Stories. Give $5, give 10 We like to see ourselves as a little bit of light during a tough day. Send any contributions to OurAmericanStories.com. How the Master Chef Lost the Thanksgiving Turkey. That story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And this next story comes to us from a regular contributor, John Elfner, who's taught U.S. history for over 20 years at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. Here's John with a great history story. I teach U.S. history to high school students, and on the first day of class, just after they've arrived, I tell them the story of something called the Freedom Train. It's the very first thing my students hear me talk about, and it's such a great story, it comes with its own soundtrack. Speaking of trains, I think it'd be a good idea for the Rhythm Airs and Mr. Trotter to join me in a song about the most important choo-choo, the Freedom Train. This song by Bing Crosby was written to celebrate a very specific train that over 3.5 million Americans boarded between 1947 and 1949. It was called the Freedom Train. The Freedom Train was a museum on rails. It was an actual train. Each car contained original documents that represented American freedom, and the train traveled from city to city for over two years. It would pull into a station and settle on a sidetrack. The local townspeople would board the train to witness freedom documents. Original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, along with many others, were featured. Dr. Stuart J. Little has written extensively about the Freedom Train, and I'm going to let him pick up the story. The Freedom Train was a social, cultural, political event immediately on the heels of the end of the Second World War. And it began as an idea for some staff people who worked for the Department of Justice and they just so happened to be across the street from the National Archives. And they walked across the street one day, I think on their lunch hour, they got together with the Attorney General's office, with the National Archives people and said, let's see what we can do to put something together. So by the early 1947, they created this organization called the American Heritage Foundation. And they designed a very aggressive schedule to bring this train to all parts of the country. They started in September of 1947, went around the country for 413 days, went to 322 cities, and by their count, they had over 3 million people that visited the train every time it stopped, and the, that averaged out to, I think, about 9,000 people a day. The Freedom Train had a mission to bolster American identity. Now remember, we were barely out of World War II, and the nation had been so unified with a purpose that was literally life and death during that war. And now the war was over. We were entering our next great conflict, the Cold War, and the organizers of the Freedom Train recognized the need to encourage a very specific idea of what it means to be an American outside of wartime. And their organizing principle was freedom. Here again is Dr. Little. We've defeated the Nazis and the Japanese. There's a great consensus in America for what we mean, and we can pull these documents together and reflect that, that we're on the, the right path. We've defeated everybody. We're literally at the rise of American power after World War II. And so there's this great sense of accomplishment and moving forward. Townspeople excitedly rushed in droves to see the Freedom Train, but you don't have to take my word for it. I met two women who boarded the Freedom Train in 1947. I would have been 12 or 13. That's Clarice Fleet, and she boarded the train in Minot, North Dakota. I was in grade school at that time. And that's Carol Jones. She got on the train in Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1948. And it was announced all over the media. From coast to coast, the Freedom Train thrilled millions of Americans with its message of liberty. Among the documents of greatest interest, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, our Bill of Rights. 
and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the Freedom Train, bearing these guarantees of liberty, symbolize the forwards of America. The arrival of the Freedom Train, especially in small towns like Minot, North Dakota and Green Bay, Wisconsin, thrilled the people from these towns. You can hear it in Carol Jones's voice as she talks about learning the Freedom Train was coming. We were very excited to know that the Freedom Train was coming to Green Bay. Our school was going to march in, in line and get dressed up, and we were going to go see the Freedom Train. We were thoroughly excited that this train was coming to Green Bay. It was fascinating listening to these two women tell the story of their visits to the Freedom Train. To this day, Carol and Clarice have never met or spoken to each other. Both women's recollections of their visit was nearly identical. Welcome to the Freedom Train. We got our friends together and we all marched over. The whole town turned out just like they did for the state fair. We gathered at school, St. Patrick's grade school. No pushing. So the nuns all had their habits on and everything and they escorted us in line. Step this way. The line that went forever. And the train itself was in red, white, and blue. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was just lovely. And we had, we walked through, and it was, keep going, keep going. Faster, <laughs> we couldn't daddle. And on each side, and then you walked down, down the middle of the aisle of the train. They divided us up because the train was so long. Stay with your group. And then on each side, they had the documents set. They were the real documents. The Constitution is on your left. It was so exciting to see the Declaration of Independence. They showed documents under, under glass. glass. Don't touch the glass. You couldn't touch them, but you could look at them. And it went on all day. Open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This beautiful train. Very, very beautiful. As passengers boarded the train, they were handed something called the Freedom Pledge. It was created by the American Heritage Organization, and by reading it, you can tell what they meant by freedom. I will vote at all elections. I will serve on a jury when asked. I will respect and obey the laws. I will pay my taxes understandingly, if not cheerfully. I will work for peace. Getting on the train and accepting the card with the Freedom Pledge was a version of entering into a contract with the designers of the Freedom Train, committing to their notion of what it means to be an American. Every person who boarded the train was even asked to sign a scroll, which was delivered to the National Archives when the train concluded its journey in 1949. The contract sent this message, our country provided freedom, and the passenger's obligation in the contract was to fulfill this pledge. And this pledge succeeded in setting a tone for the interior of the train. Newspapers reported it this way. Inside, one has the feeling he is in church. The only light is the soft fluorescent glow reflected from the lighted documents. Parents shush their children and little schoolboys take off their caps without being told. People speak in low guarded tones used by tourists in ancient cathedrals. The Freedom Train had a mission to define through documents what it means to be an American and to get millions of people to sign on to that definition. Touring these documents from city to city, people like Clarice and Carol understood what the American Heritage Foundation had hoped that they would. Our nation is successful because of a past focused on freedom, designed by our noble ancestors, who through their work created a strong and united nation. And that unity and strength of principle allowed us to defeat tyranny in World War II. The country was unified and the Freedom Train emphasized that unity. Everybody was 
so appreciative to be able to see those things because to have it come to our, our little hometown meant so much to everybody at that time. I don't know anybody in town that didn't go down there. All we knew is that something exciting was coming to town and that we were going to see the Freedom Train, the real Freedom Train, with real things that were all about Washington and Lincoln. We would have to see for real just the fact that you were looking at the actual documents that formulated our country. Everybody was God bless America and there was no controversy and we were coming out of the war and there was a lot of patriotism going on. We had yet to face what was happening as far as integration goes. That may have been true in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but as the train scheduled stops in the south, city officials in Birmingham, Alabama, announced that in their city, the Freedom Train would be segregated. And if I didn't have my students' attention up until this point, I have their attention now. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story, the Freedom Train. And by the way, what an idea to take a Freedom Pledge. I don't know if you've ever been to a a swearing-in ceremony for immigrants in this country who come here. But it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard. And I sometimes wonder if we all shouldn't have to do that as a pathway to voting and everything else. And by the way, look that pledge up. Just go up on uh, Google and, and type in Citizen Pledge. Maybe I'll read it at the end of the rest of this story. When we come back to Freedom Train, we're with John Elfner, a history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, in the south suburbs of Chicago. More on this story here on Our American Stories. Return to our American stories and the story of the Freedom Train. Let's return to John Elfner for the rest of this story. The Freedom Train was a glorious success, hosting 9,000 visitors a day, traveling over 30,000 miles in two years, and having over 3 million witnesses to our founding documents. But when the train headed for Birmingham in 1947, the town announced it would segregate African American and white visitors to the train. How can something called the Freedom Train end up with such obvious contradictions to the basic notions of freedom? It's important to remember that the year the Freedom Train began in 1947, it was still seven years before the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared segregation by race inherently unequal. But the Freedom Train organizers were ready for this. Here again is historian Stuart J. Little. The American Heritage Foundation, they had a stated written policy that they would not allow segregated viewing of these documents when the train went through the South. A portion of the Freedom Pledge even acknowledged this. In thought, expression, and action, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race, or religion. Despite the efforts of the Freedom Train organizers, many Southern cities still tried to schedule segregated viewings of the train. At this point in the story, we meet a familiar opponent of civil rights who became much more prominent after the 1963 Birmingham movement. His name is Bull Connor, and he held the position of the Commissioner of Public Safety and was the head of the police in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Remember the images of the German shepherds attacking African-American teens? Or the Birmingham Fire Department using fire hoses to break up protesters? They were acting on the orders of Bull Connor. But the Freedom Train was visiting Birmingham 16 years before that famous march. Connor's views on segregation in the Freedom Train won't surprise you. He sent a message to the organizers of the Freedom Train saying this. Our segregation law is for the equal protection of the white and black races of the city and for the prevention of disorder in the city. We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks to enter the freedom train by alternatively allowing whites and blacks in each car of the train. Can you hear how Connor is using the language of the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court? We will fairly give equal opportunity to whites and blacks. What he meant was, African Americans can board the train at separate times than whites would be boarding the train. The attempts to segregate the Freedom Train at stops like Birmingham, Alabama, didn't go unnoticed by civil rights advocates. Langston Hughes, perhaps the most celebrated poet of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a poem called The Freedom Train, and it was recorded by arguably the most famous and most political African American figure in the 1940s, Paul Robeson. Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. Atlanta, way across Georgia. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see got Jim Crow coaches set aside for me. I hope there's no Jim Crow. Researching this story, I found a ripped piece of paper in the Library of Congress's papers belonging to Rosa Parks. It was a scrap of typing paper that had faded to a parchment yellow. It was torn and only fragments of sentences were visible. The Library of Congress had cataloged it as Rosa Parks writing about the Freedom Train, but it wasn't that. It was Langston Hughes's poem. Mrs. Parks had heard it and typed it out for herself. But there's more. Mrs. Parks was aware that other cities like Birmingham had tried to segregate the lines for the Freedom Train. She decided that she would, in the words of Langston Hughes, check up on the Freedom Train when it arrived in Montgomery. Historian Dr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of a recent award-winning biography of Mrs. Parks called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. She picks up the story. The Freedom Train is supposed to be integrated and they're galled that the committee in Montgomery, it's an all-white committee, and she writes up a report from the Montgomery NAACP basically calling attention to this. And it's published in the Memphis World, which is a black newspaper. Parks, who was at that time already working for the NAACP, saw the Freedom Train as an opportunity to advocate for civil rights. In December of 1947, she ultimately takes a group of black young people to see the Freedom Train. And it's, it's dangerous. It's her first experience with kind of hate calls. The popular image of Rosa Parks is that of a seamstress who didn't want to give up her seat on the bus because she was simply tired. But the story of Rosa Parks is much more complex and layered and she may have been directly inspired by the Langston Hughes poem. Listen to these lines. The Birmingham stations marked colored and white. White folks left the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the freedom train? I'm going to check. I'm going to check up on this freedom train. Rosa Parks was checking up on the freedom train, just as Langston Hughes said you should. The train she boarded was not technically segregated, but it wasn't clear when she arrived that the community in Montgomery would allow her to integrate the train or even the line for the train. 
When Rosa Parks checked up on the Freedom Train, it was still eight years before she would become a national figure when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. So how did they do? Was the movement surrounding the Freedom Train a success? I'll let you decide. Here's what happened. When word reached organizers of the Freedom Train that southern cities were considering segregating the train, they sent advance men to all the cities to check up on any efforts to segregate the lines to the Freedom Train. Any cities that had such plans were told the Freedom Train would cancel its visits. Only Birmingham and Memphis, Tennessee continued to insist on segregated lines, and in those cities, the Freedom Train stops were canceled. The decision to stand up to the city organizers in Birmingham and Memphis was cheered nationally. The New York Times made the cancellation of the Birmingham stop a front-page story on Christmas Day of 1947. After the cancellations in Birmingham and Memphis, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, publicly said this, For one of the very first times in history, the rest of the country had called the bluff of the reactionary South. I began this story by saying that on the first day of my history class, I tell my students the story of the Freedom Train. Why this story? I'm going to let Dr. Kevin Boyle, Northwestern University history professor and author of my favorite history book, Arc of Justice, help answer that question. Most Americans know the story of the Civil Rights Movement. Or maybe a better way of putting it is they know a story of the Civil Rights Movement. Ask them when the Civil Rights Movement began, and they'll tell you it started on a Thursday night, a little after 5 p.m., on December 1st, 1955, when a woman, a 42-year-old woman, they think was elderly, refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. From that single act of defiance by Rosa Parks, they'll say, emerged a movement that swept across the South of the 1950s and 1960s ran through the hallways of Little Rock Central High School in 1957. It sat down at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. Rode the buses out of Anniston, Alabama in 1961. It came onto the campus of the University of Mississippi in 1962. It filled the streets of Birmingham with children in the spring of 1963. It dared to go into the Mississippi Delta in the summer of 64. It marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma, Alabama in 1965, and it died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee in April of 1968. That's the story of civil rights as most Americans understand it. So what happens when you look at the African-American struggle that doesn't fit into that story, that doesn't fit between 1955 and 1965, when it doesn't fit into that triumphant trajectory, what happens to civil rights then? What happens is a reconsideration of the story of the civil rights movement, a story we thought we knew. And when you widen the civil rights movement beyond the years of the traditional story, my students realize that Rosa Parks and scores of others like her were fighting for civil rights long before the Montgomery bus boycott. And when they realize that a story they thought they knew is more complex and requires more exploration, it forces them to dig more deeply into all eras of history. It also gives them a chance to consider what artifacts from each era could be used to represent what it means to be an American. There was a second Freedom Train that traveled through our country to celebrate America's bicentennial in 1976. 
It featured many of the same documents from the original Freedom Train, but it also included dozens of documents that didn't exist at the time of the first Freedom Train, like a moon rock gathered by astronauts during the Apollo mission, John F. Kennedy's rocking chair from the White House, Hank Aaron's baseball cap, and dozens of other more recent artifacts. Seeing the difference between the two trains makes me wonder what would a Freedom Train have looked like in 1830, 1865, 1920, or today? In the year 2026, our country will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our Sester Centennial than for us to get on board a third Freedom Train. And what stories, speeches, people, portraits, and songs would you want to see on that Freedom Train to represent what it means to be an American? I hope somebody plans a Freedom Train, and if they do, let's get on board together. I guarantee you the lines will be long, but there'll be plenty of room for all of us on the 21st Century Freedom Train. All aboard! The Freedom Train is And you've been listening to John Elfner and the story of the Freedom Train and that second installment, particularly compelling, telling the story of segregation in America and giving the larger picture. We did a terrific piece on Rosa Parks and her life story, and it's clear that that was not the beginning of of her trial that for a long time before Rosa Parks had been on the move trying to change things in the South and heck, there was a heck of a lot of segregation in the North too. I'm a Jersey boy uh, by, by birth and my goodness, almost all the neighborhoods were filled with white folks and when black folks moved in, white folks left. There wasn't a law forcing them to, but they did it anyway. And we cover all the stories here on Our American Stories, the good ones, the bad ones, and everything in between. The Freedom Train, here's hoping we get one for 2026. I'd love to see what's on it. That story here on Our American Stories.